There's no music if you have no body to play it with, so take care of your body first. You getting into the gym and you lifting weights and working on muscles, is this, it's physical therapy for the benefit of your playing. The truth is nothing works like just taking care of the simple stuff. Diet, exercise and sleep. Take care of that and you'll be fine. Join us as two musicians and fitness coaches discuss strength, wellness and fitness in relation to musicians, artists and performance. Hey, welcome back to the Tuned and Strong podcast. This is Angela McHouston of Music Strong. And this is Dr. Jen Cavis May of Tuned and Toned Performance. And we are uh, we got it right for once. <laughs> and we are joined today um, by a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Brian Corbin, um, owner of it is Corbin Clarinet Products, right? You got it. Yeah. Okay. So this is going to be a little bit more on the business side of of our podcast topics. So, um, Brian, why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself, like what you do, how you got there. Oh, how much time do you have? Um, yeah, time. so <laughs> all the time in the world. Um, I'll, I'll give you the summary and you can poke a little bit uh, if you like. So, of course, my name is Brian Corbin. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having having me here, uh, Jen. We go we go way back. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, my name is Brian Corbin. I own uh, Corbin Clarinet Products, officially B Corbin Clarinet Products, and we live in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, and, you know, I'm married to uh, my wife, Lily, who is also a clarinet player, both clarinet players. She plays in the uh, Navy band here in Pearl Harbor. Uh, but I'm, I'm just the sort of ultimate clarinet, if you will. Um, and I do a lot of, of clarinet business stuff. So um, I, I make and manufacture uh, clarinet barrels and, and different accessories. And we uh, distribute clarinets for Royal Global uh, and some other brands. Um, and, and we just build a network of, of people that love clarinet um, and, and just a bunch of clarinet related stuff. So that's kind of my business. Before we moved to Hawaii, I, I did a lot of performing and teaching, uh, but that's not really, unfortunately, the community that Hawaii has here. So there's not nearly as much opportunity for me to perform. And so I've scaled that back uh, pretty much to almost zero um, for now, uh, which is which is sort of sad, but it um, doesn't have to be, uh, and, and teaching is, is now mostly mostly virtual. So I do do a lot more traveling now that um, things are kind of opening back up. We just returned from from Texas last week, the big Texas Music Educators Association conference. So uh, just just a big big clarinet nerd. Um, got a couple of degrees from Indiana University and Florida State University, which is actually where I, I met uh, Jen there at FSU in Tallahassee. Woohoo! Um, we're all and, FSU grads. Uh, well, yeah. there, so there, no, I mean, there's the Noel connection. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, Angela's got a question. Okay, let's go with that. Um, yeah, my, my thought was, um, so you, obviously when we met, you were, you were doing repair, but it, my impression was that it was mostly on the side. It was a lot of performing and teaching, like you were saying. Um, so what kind of brought... And I say repair because that's that's in my head how you got from where you were to where you are is started with repair. Um, how how did that transition look for you? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I'll just go to the beginning where where the repair started because you know having um, 
you know, listening to some of your podcasts and seeing the variety of topics that you're talking about, um, not just, you know, fitness specific or performance specific, but about business and all of that. I think it's important for people to realize how many aspects of our business uh, can be utilized for your career, right? So um, when I was an undergraduate, you know, music education, I, I wanted to be the world's uh, next greatest band director in the world. I mean, I was that kid, right? Um, grew up in, in the public school band. And that was like, oh my gosh, it changed my life, right? So I wanted to be a band director. I was at Indiana University. I was doing music ed. But part of that process is you, you're going out to schools and you're kind of observing other teachers and you're, and you're working with these students. And one of the major issues that I found when I was going into the schools was just the functionality of the students' instruments. So I was having a teacher who's asking me to lead clarinet sectionals. And most of that time was spent diagnosing and sort of uh, repairing and air quotes because I was just doing sort of what I thought I needed to do to get those instruments to be functional. But kind of a memory struck with me because I remember being in sixth or seventh grade band, I think it was sixth grade band. And, um, you know, I was starting on old plastic Bundy, was in disrepair, not good shape, and it wasn't working. And my teacher, you know, when we, we weren't able to play, just finger on a pencil. And I remember feeling sort of left out a little bit, right? And not, that teacher, by the way, was one of my favorite teachers. So nothing against the teacher, but trying to get me to cooperate, you know, to, to, to participate in the class, even though I couldn't play. Well, I didn't ever want that really to be uh, something that, you know, held back one of my future students. So I remember being a sophomore at IU and thinking, I have to learn at least some basic repair skills because whether it's financial reasons or time, you know, I'm going to be in a position where I need to fix my students' instruments. So uh, for Christmas one year, I asked for a music medic repair kit. At the time, they were like, I don't know, 90, 100 bucks or something. And that's really where it all started. I was a sophomore at IU. I got this kit. I started buying like $30, $40 clarinets on eBay. Um, eventually, I would pretty much destroy my own plastic clarinet in the process. Um, and I just learned how to do basic things, how to change a cork, how to test for leaks, how to change a pad. Very, very simple things um, that eventually would lead me into my later time at IU doing things as big as a full repad. That's like a big deal to me. Uh, for someone who started with no formal training, has never received any formal training on repair for that matter, and just learned through uh, YouTube videos, every book that was available, uh, watching other repair techs at a local music store that I taught at. Um, that, that's where it was. So, so Jen, when you met me, I just you know, got to FSU and I was just dangerous enough with repair that <laughs> teachers uh, could uh -oh. send me <laughs> students, right? And I could at least say, oh yeah, I can do that without messing up, right? Because I never did anything that I wouldn't first do in my own horn. That was uh, sort of the principle I lived by. I would never take money from anybody for any repair that I wasn't first going to be able to do on my own horn and haven't, you know, that, that I was going to have success because I've done it multiple times. I felt confident. Um, that's something, by the way, that's really important when you do things. I know a lot of people um, who say, just say yes and figure it out later. Um, I don't ascribe to that in all aspects of my life when you're dealing with people's livelihoods. So that's where I was when, when I got to FSU and I was quickly the guy that people 
uh, would send to do just basic stuff, right? So if somebody split their clarinet in half, that's a different story. But leaking yeah. things, keys, <laughs> stuff like that, right? Um, I got better and better the more I did it, the more I watched and learned. And so it was actually that first year at FSU where um, I thought, hey, you know, I'm learning so much about repair. I'm learning about things like acoustics. When I raise this vent pad up, that changes the clarity and the intonation and resonance of a note. When I add material to this tone hole, that lowers the pitch. You know, different things I discovered, um, I, I was learning just sort of second nature. And I said, hey, wait a second, you know, I've got this R13 clarinet, right? Very popular model clarinet for those non-clarinet players. And they all kind of suffer from the same sort of um, issues because, you know, the clarinet, like most instruments are imperfect. You have to compromise things. Um, and that led me into reading more about acoustics and the barrel making. Um, and I took some wood turning lessons while I was in Tallahassee, actually, to learn as much as I could about wood. Now, this guy had no musical background. He didn't know anything about what I was doing, but I didn't care because I wanted to learn things from somebody who wasn't in my industry who could teach me those basics. I took all that knowledge and uh, I took it to uh, one of my, who's now a, a friend and colleague of mine, a manufacturer, and I started designing things and giving him these designs and saying, hey, I want to do this and that. The numbers tell me that if I do this, this is going to change this or that. I need your manufacturing skills to take my designs uh, and bring them to life, right? Here's a model that I made on a wood lathe. It took me three hours to make this one barrel, but uh, that's not survivable. So can you do that in a larger scale? And that's where it started. And then once you get in the industry, you meet people, you learn from other people, you expand your horizons. All this time, I was also learning about mouthpieces. I was interacting with other people. I was finding out that there were other uh, manufacturers in the world that Americans really had no idea about because marketing sort of sort of dominates. Um, and I linked up with with the guy who who I now work very intimately with, Yuan Gao, with Royal Global Instruments. And this guy is just amazing. He owns his own his own factory. He built it up, uh, you know, himself before he was working with others. Um, and now he has 100% control. And so that's where my business sort of started. And where I am today is. Uh, traveling all the, all around the country, showing people my products and the Royal products and showing them that, you know, really high quality stuff can be made um, at, a, at a reasonable price. And we're now sharing what I think is the really cool part of this is we're sharing these musical gifts with people who before couldn't necessarily participate because maybe they were financially out of the game. So, you know, hey, you can buy a, a set of B flat and A set of clarinets that are really, really good. Uh, for the same price as one clarinet, one premium clarinet from another manufacturer. Not that those aren't amazing clarinets. They're really great clarinets. It's just that it's the difference between, you know, this is not a great analogy, but, you know, I my first car was a Corolla. Well, guess what? That Corolla got me from where I needed to go, point A to point, point B. Maybe I would like a Ferrari or a Porsche, but I'm going to spend more money on those. You know, it's probably going to have more issues, to be honest. Um, and the goals are accomplished. I just look a little cooler getting there from one place to the other. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so that, that's kind of where I am now. And it, I went from repair all the while, by the way, I should mention this. My teachers were very supportive of what I was doing, even when maybe sometimes I knew that they wanted me to practice a little more or do this or that. 
they understood that my career path was going to be different, look different than everyone else's as most people's do. Um, and they understood that I was going to take control of that. And that's where, you know, for me, I look back, I think, wow, I had some really amazing teachers because not many teachers would have put up with the things that I uh, wanted to do, but I think it worked out for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I did not realize that you're not, well, okay. So this is, this is kind of a multi-tiered thing. And Angela, if you've got something else, like feel free to dive in here. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I, I'm going to say, I didn't realize that you didn't have formal training in repair, but at the same time, um, for people who don't know, I do actually have a little bit of background in repair, not like Brian, like, don't ask me to do a repad. I can, but uh, unless you really, really don't care about what happens to the instrument, I would <laughs> <laughs> you know, but same sort of thing where um, my training came from a mix of experience, uh, experimenting because you're on a gig and like, okay, well, this pad is leaking, fix it right now. So you can, you know, get your money. And uh, I, I lucked into kind of an apprenticeship position um, temporarily. It was, it was a halftime job for one of the local shops and they just taught me on the job. You know? <laughs> um, but I didn't realize that your training was informal, except that thinking about that, we don't, there's not, I think there's a couple of repair schools. I was just about to ask. I mean, but, what, what repair schools are there? Like, this is not something that's talked about. It's just no. like, so where, that is like the biggest question. Where do I send my flute? Where do I send my instrument? Yeah. And everybody goes, yeah. I mean, or I know a guy. <laughs> or I know a guy. Yeah. I know a guy, you know, but it's like, and then we're not taught how to repair our own instruments. It's a weird situation to be in. I don't, I don't get it at all. So like, where, where do you go to learn? Yeah. Oh, that, that's a great question, actually. And, and you're hitting on something that uh, I want to change a little bit. So first off, there, there are, there are repair schools, right? There are, you know, places like Red Wing and Red Wing, Minnesota, and a couple of others that there is a uh, organization, a national organization um, that, you know, professional repair technicians are a part of that do sponsored classes. But um, I don't want to say but because that is, that's a very, um, you know, it's, it's an infrastructure that's been around a long time. And most, you know, repair techs in most music stores are familiar with either these schools or they've been there. So there's pros and cons. The pros of those schools are that for relatively little investment, it's still education, but for relatively little investment compared to the, you know, six figure cost of a lot of our, our education, um, you can learn how to basically be very employable by, by many uh, stores to fix instruments, whether it's band instruments or string instruments or, or whatever, but usually you become sort of the uh, jack of all trades technician. And what that means doesn't necessarily mean your quality, the work, you know, your, your quality of your work is low, but what it does mean is that you're not probably going to be focusing on one type of thing at a time, which means you may not have either the resources or time or ability to sort of do what we consider like artist level repairs. And so there are schools out there. There's only a few. Um, and typically most people don't know about them and it may not be marketed as an incredibly attractive career. So that's the other thing. Because remember, a lot of people who do what we do, do so because of what it looks like to us from the outside, uh, regardless of what it actually is 
you know, to us internally. So there are some schools. But the other thing to remember is that there was a time, and maybe that's coming back, we'll see, but there was a time where most of the best technicians were able to do so with an apprenticeship. Okay, so they were working one-on-one -on -one with someone. Uh, there are a lot of famous uh, clarinet technicians that come out of places like Philadelphia and a lot of history behind that that you can you can read about. But traditionally, um, that was a, a job where you were an apprentice. You Maybe you made some money, but obviously you weren't making what the people who were teaching you were making. But it was a, a, a relationship that went both ways. They were getting some help. They were teaching you and they were also getting some help and you were getting an education and, you know, sort of a living at the same time. And then eventually they understood you'd go out and do your own thing uh, unless they gave you an attractive offer. That's how it worked. Well, there's a period in time where and this isn't just exclusive to this world. It becomes a very competitive market where it's no longer necessarily uh, viable to teach someone how to do what you're doing or to give them all of your knowledge without understanding that they're gonna eventually take your market share a little bit. So you have to think about that. I know it's hard for us to say, well, that, that's a crazy shift, but that is a part of the world today where people are a little bit scared to share their knowledge in fear of what that could do for their living. And I have to be honest, that is a very reasonable thing to consider. Um, if, if you're not going to have someone pay you for your education, what you think it's value. So you're right. Most of us say, uh, I've got a guy or I, I, you know, here's my technician, you know, she's really great at, uh, at oboes, um, or that. But if you take a look now, most of the repair techs that are really, really superb at what they do that we know of, um, have been a either doing it for a long time. B, they had that one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship, so they're really, really good. Um, you know, C, maybe they are clarinet players, and so they're working on clarinets. That's where I am. I didn't have formal training, but where I had a leg up is I know what a clarinet's supposed to feel like. I know what a clarinet, uh, I know the possibilities. And even though no one told me what that should do, I knew because I, as, as a player who you know, played at a high level, a lot of education, um, I understood that. So, you know, a lot of the best oboe repair technicians, they're oboe players or former mm -hmm. oboe players, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, a really, that's a really key part of our role. But what I want to change, actually, is, is what you said, Angela. We don't get taught this type of stuff in school. We don't get taught a lot of things in school, let me just say, that we, mm -hmm. that we should. And I think it should be a mandatory class in every single music education and music performance degree that uh, you, you should take at least a semester of, of, of you know, repair, basic repair techniques. And I actually think it should be exclusive in part to your instrument, right? So maybe if it's music education, you are required to learn some basics on multiple instruments, but one semester is not a lot of time. Uh, but especially if your performance, it should be, can you take a part and put your instrument back together and it still works at the end of it? Most people would say, no, they can't. Uh, and for me, as somebody who wants independence, flexibility, uh, that's really scary to say, hey, yeah, I'll do this gig. And then you show up to the gig, something's not working. What are you going to do? What do you do? You know? Yeah, at, at least at least basics of rigging an instrument, you know, tackling an emergency repair of a leaky pad or a busted spring or, you know, rubber bands, well, hair ties, and, fell out. <laughs> you know, I mean, little things. Right. Rubber bands, hair ties, sticky pads, and um, Teflon Belt. tape. 
Teflon tape, huge one. <laughs> yeah, like I can do most of what I need with those things in a pinch. <laughs> you know? right. yep. But it's, it's, it's chewing gum, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, at least, at least you want your your people to be able to rig their stuff for a gig. Like maybe, maybe not the more advanced stuff, or even like recorking is still scary to me. Again, I can do that, but. Rake working is scary to me. Um, I'm always afraid that I'm going to shave off some of the tenants. Like, mm. you know? <laughs> um, but at least, at least rigging it, you know? You know, I mean, like I was yeah. having this conversation with a couple of students yesterday. Um, one of my students looked at me and she goes, my flute is clicking. Why is it clicking? Oh, well, get it here. And I looked like, well, you know, her, the, the low B key, one of the, um, the, on the little feet, the cork had fallen out. I'm like, ah, cork is off. She goes, what do I do? I'm like, how often do you use that key right now? Like zero, don't worry about it. And, but in the meantime, you know, we're like, oh, and I'm racking my brains like, well, who, you know, she's got like a $12,000 flute. I'm not touching it, you know? And that's the thing. It's like, yeah, you've got this. Then again, I could probably fix it, but do I have the tools? Have I ever done it? No. Where do I go get cork? That's only this tiny, you know, it's like, we're not given those skills. And in fact, we were talking about, um, we were talking about screwdrivers and somebody said, why would I have a screwdriver? Actually, who has screwdrivers? And I went, I got two sets. <laughs> like I got this nifty little set in high school. And I like with the little, the, the one that it moves at the top, like I use these suckers all the time. I'm like, you know, like somebody's, somebody's um, D sharp roller keys always falling off or the okay. screws always coming out. And those are little things you can do at least a little bit. Right. And I got this in high school and I remember thinking, whoa, look at me. I have screwdrivers. I can do things. You know, like, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but like, then you just kind of pick stuff up and like, why was that not taught as basics and lessons instead of when something happens, you better know who to ask and freak out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's another side of this, by the way, which is a lot of times these repairs uh, that crop up are because, you know, students or not just students, but, but performers instruments weren't set up to begin with in the first place, or they mm -hmm. didn't have the regular maintenance. So what's hard to tell people is sort of like, look, wouldn't you get your, your oil change on your car at regular intervals so that you can protect your investment? Although that, I wouldn't call that an investment, but you get the point, uh, you know, a musical instrument is the same thing. You got to get your regular oil changes. You have to get your regular maintenance because you're going to end up paying more later, not only in financial resources, but potentially in time because it may be worse. And then you're out of commission for a while. So mm -hmm. one of the things we do and why I work so closely with this particular manufacturer is that we want the instruments when they're new to arrive to you. Yes, you know, always most instruments need some setup, but we want them to come to you in a position where you don't need to do any major uh, mechanical things for years to come other than the standard stuff that's going to happen over over time right so that's another part of the industry that you know we don't educate oh yeah go to your local music store and go buy this this Gemeinhart flute or whatever I'm just that's like as much flute stuff as, as I know um, go, go buy this <laughs> instrument um, and and the music store sells you an instrument as it came straight from the factory right, right. Ooh, that's a little yeah. scary and that's yeah. part of what we're changing now. So you may even see 
these little sort of boutique shops, which by the way, I love, are starting to crop up more and more amongst all the instruments, right? Um, I work with several, uh, you know, several of these dealers who all they do are clarinets or maybe saxophones or flutes or whatever. And they specialize in, you know, this is how an instrument should arrive to you from brand new. Don't get me wrong. I actually think it's important that we support our local music stores as well. So it would be great if we can educate these local businesses that have been around for a while to support your local economy. That being said, as musicians, uh, our time is our money. Um, that's just the way it is, right? People don't even, I don't think they often think about all that practice time you're putting in. Um, that's that's money, right? Um, that's, that's actual money. Other people, you know, they go to work nine to five, they come home, they're done with work. They go back to work. Uh, they still get their check. We might put in 30 hours of practice for something and get paid, you know, a thousand dollars and, you know, for 30 hours, that's nothing, right? So don't let these other things affect your business uh, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that too, when students are trying out instruments, they're like, well, I like this one because it feels better. And I'm like, okay. The other one, just like the, the straight open G sounds better on this other one that you're really, okay, let me test it. Let me like hand it over, swap mouthpieces, whatever. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's because this is not set up at all. This is atrocious. And I don't know who touched it, but it's, it came out of the factory leaking. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not adjusted. You can't play a long B because the, it's out of alignment and just, well, there must be something wrong with the instrument because I'm blowing as hard as I can. No, kiddo. Well, I mean, no, it, it's that they thought there was something wrong with, wrong them. with them. Sorry, right. my bad. Yeah. No, it's your instrument. <laughs> no, not it's the you. instrument. And it's not even the instrument per se in that way. It's, it's how it's not adjusted. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you know what? You had another great point that, I mean, I was going to say a lot of people will immediately blame the manufacturer. And to some degree, yes, right? It is the manufacturer in terms of the result coming from the factory. But I mean, I'll be at a conference or something and people will say, um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll blame, insert name of manufacturer here uh, because this instrument, oh, this is just a terrible instrument. Well, first off, you can never make a judgment about a particular model of instrument by playing only one. That's the first right. thing, right? Yep. The second thing is it's not fair for you to immediately blame someone who's not right there with you, making sure the instrument is exactly in the shape it was sort of destined to be for its optimal performance, right? So we get this all the time. Like I distribute Royal Global Clarinets, but you know, I play multiple brands, right? My bass clarinet is a Buffet Tosca. We have Selmers and Yamahas here. Uh, of course we sell Royal Global. So I'm not sort of this like brand elitist, like a lot of people are, unfortunately. But I do know that, you know, every single one of these manufacturers makes really high quality instruments. But if they're not set up, they're not going to be, they're not going to play well, right? And so that's a really, really important education tool that we're missing. Um, and, and I see even, it's so sad to see, but even teachers with doctorates and, you know, a lot of education and really qualified performers who have little to no and in some ways harmful information that they're passing on to their students about uh, particular makes and models of instruments. And so sometimes, you know, I'll see this, I won't, 
I won't go too deep into it, but sometimes it's because, you know, teachers may have a financial incentive to um, either tell you to buy a certain instrument or maybe send you to their repair guy. I'm not saying that's common. I'm just saying I've seen that. Sometimes it's simply because, look, they're, they're teaching and performing. They don't have time to sit there and, and fix your instrument or worry about that. That's a part of your education you're expected to take uh, control over, but they should be informed of how to take you to those next steps, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know in the flute world, <laughs> you're talking about brand elitists, <laughs> nothing but. <laughs> it's like, you play a what? Oh, well, I play a, uh, you know, it's like, everybody's got their own, their own, you know, their own preference. I mean, I know I certainly have mine and it, it's just like, there's nothing wrong with that. And it, I, it's kind of funny when he's mentioned like being a, have a, a little bit of financial incentive. I kind of like the idea of, of, um, of teachers having that a little bit because they might be able to get their hands on some things that their students wouldn't be able to to get them to try it but at the same time if you're only doing that at the expense of not being able to try other things eh, not not so much right but i yeah. do know like in the flute world we have like sponsored you know i'm a yamaha yeah. artist or a miyazawa yep. artist or so and so yep. artist i mean it same. is everywhere yep. yeah yeah no and, and, you know and you make a good you make a good point, but there's a couple of sides to that coin, right? So, um, of course, I know teachers who, you know, because they, they need to make a living too. I mean, let, let's not act like uh, most college gigs are these really well-paying jobs, right? There's there are very few of them, and there's two sides of the coin. One side is that you know, for for me to remember, a Angela, you made a great point. There's this elitism in our in our industry. But actually, the elitism is only a very small part of our industry. What people don't realize is when we talk about clarinets or any other instrument, guess what? Most people that are buying these instruments are not professional musicians, right? There are more student plastic clarinets sold than any wooden clarinet by far, hands down. Why? Because you got a school band, right, that needs to supply 30 clarinets. And so guess what? They're not selling 30 uh, professional clarinets. They're, they're getting these, these plastic clarinets or whatever that can stand up to a lot. So we have to remember that most people who buy musical instruments are not in, in the professional world like we are. It just happens to be that the marketing kind of looks like that, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is, yes, I, I do find that uh, the teachers, look, they have to make income. They have to make a living and, and maybe they're not paid that great from whatever job they have. And so some of the ways they do that is by building up their reputation, which maybe that means uh, aligning yourself with a professional company that who, whose instruments you play and you love and they're gonna support you in some way. Nothing wrong with that at all. I'm all for that actually. But I do have a little bit of a problem with uh, teachers getting direct compensation for selling instruments to their students uh, because typically what ends up happening is then the students, uh, despite what you, what you think might be a benefit, they end up not getting access to multiple brands. They're often sort of streamlined into this. In fact, I was just at this conference uh, talking to somebody who had just joined, the, the professor had just joined the artist roster of some company and then guess what? All their students are asked to buy this particular model and brand of instrument. 
And not beside the fact that I thought, you know, that that's a little bit, you know, for some kids who are on scholarship, especially, or, or you know, spending five or $10,000 on an instrument can be a lot of money. But the other side of it is they do get a, a, a cut of that. And, you know, I think it's one thing to give a teacher a credit or here, here's a mouthpiece or here's a barrel or here's a discount on your, or something like that. But it's another to say, okay, you're responsible for educating the next generation of musicians and educators, but I'm not going to, you know, give you access or give you the ability to shop around and find out what's best for you. Because guess what? Your voice may not be my voice. And while I do think that manufacturers make a variety of instruments for that reason, so you can usually find something you like within each manufacturer, there are sort of differences amongst all. So some manufacturers of clarinets may make clarinets with thicker sidewalls, um, whereas some may make them with thinner sidewalls. Mm -hmm. The thinner sidewalls overall is going to give you more resonance and ring and maybe upper partials and better response. The thicker sidewalls may give you a deeper and darker sound, maybe a little more resistant, and maybe you like one or the other, but we're not educating people on those types of characteristics, mainly because the manufacturers don't necessarily want people talking about these types of, of things. So that's that's one thing, but the other is the teachers simply don't know, um, and, and they, they also don't know how to translate that. And that's something that I've learned uh, sort of being on the ground that there's a lot of marketing you have to wade through to get to really the heart of the matter, which is getting people the instruments that are going to be used as a tool for their voice, right? I could play any brand of clarinet, and at the end of the day, I guarantee you, I'm going to sound like myself, you know, mm -hmm. at the end of the day. It's just which tool makes that a little bit easier for me. I may have to work harder on one and less hard on, on the other. But I could sound like myself because most music comes from here, right? And here uh, and here to some degree, if you believe in that and, and other things. Yeah. And if you're audio only, he pointed to his ears, uh, embouchure and heart. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to keep an eye out for this stuff as, as we're producing more audio only stuff. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was the same thing when I was working in the, in the shop that I was working in. Um, I mean, you know, I told you I'm, I'm working on plastic clarinets. They're usually the junker used ones, you know, it's what you learn on. Um, so if I destroyed something, it wasn't the end of the world. You know? <laughs> um, but I mean, I think at the time Ryan would come meet me for lunch some days and he would know pulling in whether or not it was me or one of the other two guys working on clarinets who was testing the instrument, he knew. He's like, yeah, well, that sounded like you and that one didn't, <laughs> like on a crappy piece of plastic versus, you know, my professional model. Yeah, so, and I I feel fortunate. I've, I've heard through the grapevine of the ones who like, no, I'm a this artist, so therefore, if you're gonna join my studio, you must have this instrument. Um, I was very fortunate though, I feel like, um, that even though I, I studied under sponsored clarinetists, uh, brand sponsored clarinetists, we had, we always had a couple people who were on other brands and it was never an issue as long as they sounded fine and weren't experiencing technical problems, you know, and they sounded like they belonged in the studio. It wasn't, it wasn't anything bizarre. <laughs> you know, I, I feel probably kind of blessed that I was never in a studio where you were expected to play a certain thing ever. Yeah. 
Yeah. You were just expected to, to make sure that you invest in what was right for your sound and your budget. I mean, it, everybody celebrated when you got a new flute. We didn't care what it was, but we wanted to hear how excited you were and how did you sound and show us all about it and why you liked it. And, uh, you know, I mean, like seeing that and seeing the process, I mean, we would go to like the Florida Flute Fair and NFA and all these things. And, and the whole studio would be like, oh, let's listen to so-and-so try these different instruments. But it wasn't a brand thing. Thank goodness. Yeah. So like yeah, the last yeah. few years of when I was teaching private lessons to high schoolers and middle schoolers, um, I set up a relationship with um, a company. They also do repairs, but they, are, um, they do repairs and they sell instruments. And I said, hey, you know, can you send me, I would, I would put out to the, the studio because I'd have, you know, the kids need step up instruments. There was nothing around here. And they're like, what do I need? And they've, you know, and I, it's like, it's not that simple that I just give you a brand. There's no, and I finally said, send me. And I would, I would, I think at one point there were like 15, 20 flutes that they sent me all different, like different budgets, different styles, different metals, different brands. And I would lay them all out and the kids got to try them. And of course I kind of guided them to what I thought was the best, but they could try anything they wanted from like a $15,000 flute to an $800 flute. They could try it all. And then their parents got here and then they got to trial it. And then, it, you know, and just, just having them be able to try the different instruments and see what they feel like. Cause they all do feel a little different was really eye-opening because they're like, well, mom said I need a step up instrument. Do I just, which one do I get? And like, it's not that simple. Right. Right. And then I got a, yeah, yeah I, mean, I got a commission, which was nice, but I let them. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that, right. that's different than, than what we're talking about, right? I mean, it's different right. when, um, you know, you're still giving them the opportunity. And, and the irony is, you know, I play, uh, you know, going through school, right? I remember my first professional clarinet, you know, everyone said, hey, get a buffet R13. And I'm glad I did because that got me to where I was, right? Uh, or, and where I am today. But the irony of all of that is that once I got past high school, actually, one of my teachers played Buffet and LeBlanc, you know, the other uh, played in the president's own and, and you know, she's playing on, on Buffet, very common in the band at the time. And but when I went to when I went to my first uh, school, you know, IU as, as an undergraduate, nobody, none of the three teachers there played Buffet, right? Two of them played Rossi, one of them played Selmer, but they never told us you got to go buy Selmer or you got to go buy a Rossi. And still most people play buffet because that was what uh, was kind of the standard and they make great instruments. Um, and, and so uh, then I went to Florida state and guess what? None of those teachers played buffet. I mean, at some point everybody has played buffet, right? So they played them right. at some point, but they were, they were artists for different companies and never once was I told I needed to buy a clarinet from their company. Um, in fact, even they still all kind of said, well, at least we, we know that, you know, if you, if you get an R13 or if you get a buffet, we at least know that's it's common and people know how to work on them. And so despite none of them actually playing this one brand, um, I was, I was, I was still open to, you know, they were still suggesting maybe you go with the thing that people know. So on one hand, as, especially as young students, right, it's up to us to know the quality you know, it, it's, it's, you gotta, if you're going to recommend something, you want to know that it's, it's good and it will hold up. So in that aspect, I totally understand teachers saying, look, um, go get, you know, go get this Yamaha, whatever, go get this or that, because at least I know that there's a brand and a warranty behind it and it's going to hold up. And this is a really 
popular instrument, right? Or, um, you know, later down the road, people will say, well, look, if you're really, really serious, and I don't love this, but if you're really, really serious and you want to get this job and this ensemble, well, guess what? If you don't play this instrument, they may not like you. And I, I don't love that because I, I think that's overblown a little bit. But that's a little bit different than when we talk about the masses, right? Yeah. Um, or, or people who, who they has to all be one brand. I mean, you know, Lily, you know, my wife, she plays Royal Global Clarinets and she's an artist for them. And they were really the first clarinets that she played that it like felt like home to her. But guess what? Royal doesn't make an E-flat clarinet right now. And, and so her, her E-flat clarinet is, is a buffet. Guess what? My, you know, I play Royal clarinets, but my bass clarinet is a Tosca bass clarinet, which I absolutely love. Uh, and I have no plans on getting rid of that bass anytime soon, just because there's another bass that I, you know, I'm, I'm a business, I have a business relationship with. Um, that's not something I, I find is very helpful for me because I'm going to play what's best for me, what I've already invested in. And I also don't find it helpful for others to try to convince people um, that what I'm doing is, is the right way because maybe you don't want to sound like me or maybe you have different, uh, you know, physiological structure, which, you know, you guys understand better than a lot of other people that is going to make one thing easier for you than another. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think this is probably a good time to take a quick break before we start down another path. <laughs> but I do have a couple other topics when we come back. Be right back. Hey, musicians. Did you know that up to 90% of musicians will experience playing related pain or injury over the course of their career? How many hushed conversations have you heard about a lingering, quote, shoulder pain or a weird tingling in your fingers? or maybe low back pain, or a crampy weakness, or maybe you or your colleague just says, I just have to get through the gig, and you watch them pop Advil like candy, maybe flush it down with whiskey. How many times have we seen something like this? So many, right? Well, it's time we start talking about our struggles, our pain, our frustrations in a private space where we don't just complain and mobilize and blindly stretch, but we learn how to strengthen our muscles, our career successes, and build each other up. I've got a brand new program that combines all of these things, and I want you to be a part of it. It's a community, not a workout. It's a community with group coaching and great content that in 12 weeks will have you understanding more about your body, what you need, and how you work so you can avoid that career-threatening injury. The three things that musicians don't want. We don't want to be injured. We don't want to have a lack of stamina. And... We don't want to be clueless, a.k.a. when you hurt, who do you go see? Just a quote doctor? Well, this program addresses all of those things. You're going to walk away with an immense knowledge of who to see. You're going to be empowered because you're going to know what to do should you ever get injured or should you have a colleague that gets injured. You will be able to actually offer appropriate advice. You're also going to learn about the body and the anatomy as it relates to playing your instrument and your own anatomy. And then you're going to learn how to build not just your strength and endurance, but you're going to learn how to design your own corrective exercise program. So I hope you will join me in this new program. It's called the Music Strong Pilot Program, Job Security for Musicians. Hey guys, welcome, welcome back. back. <laughs> Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Tuned and Strong podcast. Sorry, I, did, I wasn't sure which one of us was going. So I was like, I'll do it. It's going. <laughs> uh, okay, so we are talking uh, again with Brian Corbin of B Corbin 
clarinet products. I think I got it right that time. Cool. Um, <laughs> and we, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, we, we talked about kind of where you came from, the repair business as it is, how that uh, translates into teaching and equipment. Um, but way back at the beginning, you had mentioned, you know, you intended to be a band director and then you had been doing a lot of performing. And that's kind of come to a stop because of your location. And I'm sure to just kind of the times things still not being up and running in full um, and how you're now you're now doing this full time. Right. The, the that's right. Stuff. Yeah. So we've talked in previous podcasts, uh, multiple, multiple ones of them. Um, I know we talked about it with Garrett Hope and. Heidi K. Begay, and we had one on imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about with uh, Brian Witkowski too. Yeah. Um, so multiple episodes, we've talked about um, that sort of tough emotional ride of um, transitioning, if you will, in air quotes, uh, from your original goals to like this, this elite performance type thing. And then, okay, well, we're going to go in a completely different direction. And, and that, issue of like, well, am I giving up? Am I betraying myself? You know, imposter syndrome kicks in, all sorts of stuff. Um, but since it seems like you're on pretty much the other side of this, or most of the way on the other side of this at this point, um, maybe you could just kind of talk about what you went through and how you got to the other side. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I'll say that, um, yeah, I'm on the other side, but I'm always looking to improve and evolve, right? As all of us mm -hmm. are, and and so I'm on I'm on the other side of that, mostly from two aspects. One, you know, yes, I have a lot more financial stability for sure now than I did when I was in college and before, mm -hmm. but the other side of it is sort of a mental uh, a, a mental switch you have to make. And I'll tell you that I want to be clear. I mean, I my music education degree is still very valid. My my Masters in performance is still very valid, right? I, I have absolutely no uh, doors closed in terms of potentially if the time is right in my life, going back to teaching or, you know, opening those doors to playing again. So it, it's almost not even a transition away, but more of, uh, you know, a transition into uh, a more, uh, more doors, more opportunities being open. And so I'll say this, I talked to a lot of people who wouldn't admit this publicly, but they do feel like they're a failure if they're doing anything for money that's not music related. And I, I have to say, you know, initially I felt this, you know, when we talk about imposter syndrome and those other episodes you mentioned, um, you know, I suffer from that even to this day, partly because of what we discussed about I don't have any formal training and repair. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't feel like I have any validity. A lot of people that are doing what I'm doing are much older. I just turned 30, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, and, and while well, that's still young, I think, you know, it's certainly, um, you know, compared, compared to our industry, it's viewed as very young, but mm -hmm. for other 30 year olds, we sort of feel like, oh my gosh, like, what are we doing with our lives at 30 and 35 and 40, right? Um, so I, I actually think that the biggest struggle that I had to overcome that a lot of people do as well is the, what other people see you as like how they view you. And I had to get over that. Like, you know what? I wasn't doing music to make other people happy. You know, a lot of people do like their, their goal, like they are musicians because they love what, uh, how other people interact with them. That's okay. But I actually did it for a much more selfish reason. Um, and that was because it made me happy, 
right? So the reason I wanted to become a teacher is because it made me happy to grow students and young musicians. Of course, I did it for them, but I wouldn't have done it if I didn't like doing it. The reason I performed, yes, is because I wanted the audience to enjoy it, but it was actually because I got enjoyment from them enjoying it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So oh, yeah. For me, I had to accept that um, I actually, I cared more about my happiness than I cared about other people's happiness. And that's a very selfish thing to say, and that's okay. I really believe that's okay. So the transition for me was more of what can I do in a world that's becoming harder and harder to get one of those elite jobs? What can I do to make sure that I'm financially uh, stable and I always have at least that one thing that kept me happy. And throughout all of this, there's always been one constant and that was the clarinet. So through teaching my music ed, it was the clarinet, right? Performing, obviously it's the clarinet and repair. It's the clarinet. I'm selling clarinets. It's clarinet, right? So that for me was the thing that always had to be in, in my life. And you know, I know people who today, because of the pandemic and other things, they're they're making money. Most of their income comes from non-music things. And I actually find that, and I'm sorry to say this, I actually find that um, a, a lot more, I choose my words carefully here. Um, let, let me just say, I'm impressed by those people is how I should say it. Because it takes a lot for us to admit to ourselves that this path, the stream that you had now looks different. But I don't know about you guys, you know, I know some people do, but I rarely have the exact same dream, uh, you know, at night when I wake up. If I usually have different dreams and those dreams, if they are the same theme, it's something's different about it. And just like your dreams when you're asleep in real life, your dreams evolve and they should change with the times. I'm married now. I have a wife who performs for a living. So I kind of get the performance uh, itch from her a little bit. So, you know, for, for me, it's about this. Don't care as much about what other people think. Um, care about what, you know, makes you happy and what will make you survive and hold on to the thing that you love because life is unfortunately too short um, and it's not promised to us. And if we sit around and we, but by the way, I'm admitting this to myself as we speak. So I'm having a little bit of a, of a mm -hmm. moment for myself. Yeah. But, you know, as we sit around and, and we wait to do something because of what other people, uh, you know, view us as, then, then unfortunately, you're not really living your life. So um, part of this goes back to the education. Are we teaching students that, hey, yes, you're getting a degree in performance or education or whatever the case is, but you need to be getting a degree in life. And sometimes things change, you know, uh, and you have to adapt with, with the times. And I feel really, really uh, strongly about that because it's hard for me to go to these conferences and feel like I'm an equal to these people who've been in the industry for many, many years or have these trainings or this or that. It's really hard. But, you know, sometimes, you know, Lily will, will say to me, Brian, but, but look at how happy those people that worked with you are. Look what you've done. You know, that should be enough for you. And you know what? It is now. It is enough for me to say that what I'm doing has not only a positive impact on others, but because of that, it has a positive impact on me. And am I doing the thing that at one point I thought I could never not do? 
which was performing for a living. No, I'm not doing that anymore. I miss it. I'm not closing that door. But uh, my life now looks different than it will in five years. And it looks different now than it will in 10 years. And I'm going to keep all of those doors open. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> said. <laughs> it's nice to hear that. You know, I, I, I know that you're probably not the only person who has felt like, oh, am I really, you know, because we have all these career paths and we're taught like, nope, there are two ways that you can be a legit musician. And it's these two mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Why? No, there yeah. are all these valid things and the world needs all of us as musicians to do all of them. And they're all valid and they're all legit. They're all needed. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I'll just, I'll also add that, you know, for me, going back to that point, remember that most of us are in a very small circle in a much larger geometric shape, whatever that shape is, right? So Mm -hmm. we have to remember that we spend a lot of time in school. Like if we go to, if I go to a clarinet recital, I'm almost uh, taught to sit there at that recital. And while you're sitting there, you should also be critiquing them internally so that later on, you can help them out and say in a masterclass, well, yeah, great performance. I loved your phrasing, but this or that or this or that. And you know what? I got to be 100% honest with you. That's a great tool to learn and to grow as musicians and all of that stuff. But there came mm-hmm. a point where I just wanted to sit down and get out of that mindset. Like I wanted to go to a recital and just enjoy the recital and not feel like as a clarinet player, I have to come out with something to critique them on or whatever that case is. And now I feel that way. Now when I'm working with people, um, I'm no longer saying, you know, I'm no longer making opinions and this or that. I'm saying, well, hey, let me let me know what you want. Let me know what you like. Let's figure out how to get to your end goal. And we'll, we'll work towards that, understanding that it's always a work in progress because, you know, for me, I remember those recitals, even I'm still in contact with some of these people who after I performed a recital, they weren't students, they were community members. Those were the people that were most excited about that performance. Yeah. That would come up to me afterwards, right? The, the person who played clarinet in high school yeah. or middle school, right? And they weren't critiquing me on my tone or my phrasing or my dynamic yeah. contrast or my staccato. They were just like, man, when you, when you played that, I, I remembered this or I mm-hmm. felt like that. And man, that is like, that's huge. So we have to remember that there's a world outside of the world we're a part of. And I really do believe that if I were to stay in that bubble for too long, um, I would unfortunately uh, I, would, I would go backwards in my mindset rather than expand. Yeah. I got nothing to say to that. I got nothing. I'm like, like, no, that's, you, know. you hit the nail on the head with that one. I mean, yeah. we, it's so easy for us to, to get in that bubble, but you're right. Like I can think of uh, several different concerts that I've gotten to play where an audience member came up and went, man, I played flute in middle school, you know, and then we just go on this whole thing. and like, man, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me they played a flute in middle school, you know, yeah. but yeah, I but, or clarinet, right? Right, it's right. Like, yeah. If I had a dollar for that. that and then they tell me, but they're embarrassed about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, I, I travel a lot for business. Right. And so, and I've, I've got this shirt and it says my name and my company. It's, it's the nerdiest thing, you know, B Corbett and it's got Brian on it. And so that, or I pay with a business card and it says clarinet on or whatever. And so it's very easy. Oh, I played clarinet in high school. And sometimes, you know, my wife and I will joke like, 
oh yeah, you know, everybody's a musician. They always, but actually that's the coolest part of this yeah. is that they have no way to relate to you other than what they know, which is that you're dealing with clarinets and they play clarinet. And those are the conversations I have when I'm traveling with people or sitting next to someone on a plane and we're talking, we're com from completely different worlds, mm -hmm. but somehow this one thing, even if they played for one year and quit, that's all it took for us to, to connect. And now I just build uh, a, a new friendship, even if it was a temporary one or a new relation, or I learned something from someone. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's remember that there's a world outside of, of our world and that those connections actually make us all better. Um, I, I definitely won't get political, but just to say that there are 330 million people in this country and like our country is run by like two political parties. And, uh, and that, that actually is effective. That can go through any industry. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, do you really think that there's just this, this coin and there's one side here and there's one side there and that's it? No, there's so many more sides and there's so many more coins. So let's yeah. accept that what, what builds us up and what makes us stronger uh, is actually the diversity of opinions and being able to accept that um, mm -hmm. and, and build upon that. Right. Don't just ask somebody Coke or Pepsi. <laughs> oh. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> root beer, please. Thank you. You know, and then they look at you like, what do you mean root beer? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, you're Listen. one of those. <laughs> and then you make assumptions, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. No, yeah. I think that's really good. Um, so what do you, so do you have any um, programs that you are, that you would want to share, like you're, you're coming up with? I mean, you mentioned something about how you yeah. wanted to change things in schools. Can you go a little bit more down that train of thought? Yeah, I mean, there are very, you know, new ideas because, I mean, admittedly, um, you know, I have, I don't want to make it seem like I had this luxurious, glorious life, right? I mean, I work long hours, you know, I'm in the shop a, a lot. I'm, I'm growing a business where there's no handbook on how to do it. Um, and, and so I'm learning on, on the fly in many ways, relying on experience of others. And with that, by the way, also takes its own, uh, you know, I, I take some, my fair sort of punches from people who are older and wiser, uh, air quotes for those of you who can't see, um, and tell <laughs> me how things should or shouldn't be. So I, I'm still new to, to things outside of my business, but one of the things that I, I really am, am trying to work on with, with schools, whether I'm involved or not, is for these major uh, music schools to start thinking about programs that will expand their students' marketability outside of music. So in terms of entrepreneurship, uh, maybe that is uh, bringing in a technician for a residency to teach your studio and you as well as a teacher who may be inexperienced how to do these basic things so you could pass on that knowledge, right? Or uh, more educational uh, outreach programs that will help people say, hey, look, this you know, most people will end up getting this degree or that degree if you want to go into music, but that's, that degree doesn't mean you have to do that, right? Remember, most people aren't in the field of their degree. Uh, somehow in music, we feel like, like we just forget that fact and feel like if you have to do that or you have to get this degree. And I get it, right? Because as a teacher, most states, you know, usually you got to have a college degree and it'd be better if it was in education, Right. Um, that's not really the case with performance. People don't care what degree you have. They just care if you can play or not, but that degree might get you into this or that door. So I'm working on some programs, 
uh, that are mostly not my name is not really attached to it. It's mostly like on an advisory role, just trying to help people think about things they can do um, and things that I wish I would have had when, when I was a student, you know, including, mm-hmm. um, you know, just reaching out to a more diverse group of people. And I'm not just talking about what we usually think about diversity in terms of the way people look or the way or where people come from or religion or that kind of thing. I'm talking, I mean, there's so many more aspects to uh, to, to diversity than what's often, you know, talked about or, or shown if, if you watch TV or whatever. So um, that, that, that's really important because you could, you could be from the exact same place and look the exact same you know, way and think completely different. And you can, all, you can be completely opposite and somehow your, your vision and ideals uh, align. Um, but maybe you're afraid mm-hmm. to, to speak about that in some cases. So um, yeah, still, still very fresh, still very new. I'm thinking about some things. One thing we're working on right now that I've been talking about for years, but I've internally struggled to do this is uh, a sort of blog, honestly, about my experiences, um, what I've seen uh, going from, you know, my transition into where I am now um, and some of the things I've experienced. But I'll be honest with you, what's kept me back is knowing that I have to be really careful about what I say to not step on other people's toes. Um, And I am still worrying about, um, you know, I want to tell my story without denigrating others. I want to tell my story um, with, without showing that, hey, I didn't have a great experience with this person or that person or this situation or that situation because I don't want to take away from anyone else. Um, but it's really hard to tell your truth, right, without uh, telling it factually. So I'm struggling with that a little bit, but very, very soon um, you'll, you'll be seeing some things from me that just talk very generally about how uh, my experiences came to be and how maybe others can open up and, and create their own opportunities. Yeah. And, and I think um, this might be a good transition point too into the work that you're doing with, with Royal Global, which is something that you and I have talked about externally, but you've touched on in here. Um, do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? What, what they are and, and what you're developing with them. I think those two are important. <laughs> sure, yeah. So, you know, um, this really, clarinet players may, may know this more, but I'll, just for the general, uh, you know, audience, um, in, in most, most of what we do in terms of, of, of music, there's, there's a lot of tradition involved. And a lot of that tradition um, comes from, um, you know, older thoughts and ideas about what something should or shouldn't be or a very high standard that a particular company may have, you know, reached for a long period of time, right? So for me, you know, um, I met Royal Global, I met Yuan Gao, who is the owner of, of Royal Global, some years ago, you know, at a conference when he was working w- with someone else, and they were doing a little bit different things than he was doing now. But even when I met him then, and he was working with, with other people, he was in the process of doing something kind of revolutionary. And that is to build your own factory kind of from the ground up and have 100% control over it. So to give people perspective, um, and again, this is there's no knock on anybody for this. It's just the way the industry is. All of the big name manufacturers of any instrument, all the ones that have been around for, you know, hundreds of years, uh, they may have a workshop in France or, or Germany or wherever it is where they do most of their stuff. But in order to grow to a certain level, you have to outsource, right? And so just because somebody's name is on it doesn't actually mean that it's made in their particular factory. This is pretty much how all products are made, right? Um, and it, while we should definitely have some reservations about things um, that are coming 
from China, just like we should about things that are coming from US and other places. What traditionally these manufacturers have done is outsourced uh, work to China for instruments that we want to be affordable, right? So guess what? You may love your professional instrument that's made in France, but if you want your student's instrument to be made in France and still good, they're gonna pay a lot more money than they're gonna be paying if this company has a factory they trust that they can make it you know, with cheaper labor so that now we can get more clarinets into the hands of people. So when Gao comes along and while he's you know, having other people make his design instruments for him, he's in the process of building his own factory. And Yun Gao, who originally is from China, he's an American citizen, uh, now uh, you know, actually has his own story, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's really cool because um, he basically came to this country with, with nothing, was trying to get in for a long time. You know, during that time, it wasn't easy for foreigners to come in, especially from China. Um, he got a call, his visa was approved, he sold all of his belongings, came to Boston and, uh, you know, took lessons with, with, with people and was in school. But anyways, what, what he's doing is unlike any, anyone else, he has 100% control of his factory. All of the Royal Global Instruments are made in this particular factory, which is, I think, very unique. Um, and, and as a performer, as a world-class performer, if you Google this guy, I mean, his recordings are amazing. He's won international competitions. He has that advantage, just like I have an advantage as a clarinet player working on your clarinet, because now I can say things like, hey, man, I noticed that the intonation of this note is a little bit this or that. Maybe we should alter this so that it puts the 12th a little bit higher so that we can have some room to lower that pitch. You know, these types of things that big name manufacturers cannot do because they have to do things on a very large scale, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't. I can ask them to make a change. And guess what? In three or four weeks, the next batch of instruments are, are better. So our big thing with Royal Global is that, hey, look, you know, you guys don't realize that make clarinets are not, it's not that expensive, even though you're paying, um, you know, five figures, believe it or not, for this clarinet. But there's a lot of other expenses, right? Like marketing and shipping and, you know, you got to pay people high wages. And what he's doing is saying, hey, we're making really high quality instruments. We're not going to take a huge profit. We're still paying our workers very high wages compared to what others are being paid. But we're going to do this at a level that's so high, it's going to be the best value in the industry. So for me, as someone who had to literally take out loans and paid everything on credit cards for most of my life up until recently, really, um, I could never afford those clarinets that people were playing on when they were winning auditions. So um, it means a lot to me to have a manufacturer who's solely concerned about the quality of the instrument and, you know, takes essentially less money than he could because we're more concerned about helping other people. So, you know, I should be frank that if it was up to me, I would have a clarinet store and I would sell every brand um, because I think that I'd reach more people to it. Unfortunately, in this business, um, you know, working with, with as a distributor for Royal Global, working, you know, how I work, it's not really possible for me to do that. But I'm always honest and I tell people, look, uh, just because I work with Royal doesn't mean you shouldn't look at other manufacturers. I just believe that what we're doing has the highest value. Um, because of, of just, you know, everything we're putting into it. Um, and for me, I really think that we are opening up a new market. Um, to be specific, our, our bass clarinets is like right now, there's two things that are, we just cannot make enough. Um, and part of that's because of our, our age, our, our aging of the wood, which is very high. But our student model Genesis clarinet, which I mean, blows out 
some professional clarinets out of the water in our bass clarinets because professional bass clarinets are 15 plus thousand dollars. Easy. Um, my Tosca that I have right now, if you were to buy it now, you're going to spend minimum 15 and a half thousand dollars. Well, we have a clarinet, bass clarinet, uh, that, that plays incredibly well for half that. And guess what? There's nobody else in that market. It's only a matter of time before everyone else comes on board, right? That's what's so great is that Royal is pushing the others to be better. And I love that. Some people say, well, you don't want them to compete with you. And I say, well, well, no, actually, I do want them to compete with us because what that's going to do is actually make everybody better. Then we grow the entire market share. You're only worried about people that play clarinet now. I'm worried about people who aren't playing clarinet now that have the ability to play clarinet in the future. There are millions mm -hmm. of people who don't even play an instrument. What if we market it to them rather than clarinet people who already play and have a specific you know, image in mind? So it's a completely different way of thinking that I think the industry right now operates, but things are changing as more young people are actually getting into the industry and putting their own vibe into it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a much needed thing, too. I know when I was working with, um, I don't currently have any uh, beginner, younger students, but when I was working with those and that brief window of time where I sold to, <laughs> to beginner mm -hmm. students, um, I mean, you'd be you'd be amazed how many times I mean, because you got to think of it, too, from a, a parent perspective, right, of like, sometimes you get the people in there who are like, okay, well, what's if we're going to actually spend the money? what do we need to get the kid for the first instrument so that it's actually going to be worth our time, you know? Right. And other parents who were like, well, you're just going to quit in a month anyway. So why would I, you know, <laughs> but when yeah. we see, um, I know with the clarinet industry, I don't know, Angela, with the, with the flutes or with um, really other woodwinds, I'm not as, as knowledgeable on that area, but with the clarinets, um, I'm going to try not to name names, but I think everybody who's a clarinetist will know there was basically a baseline price and then one new quote new, not new, but one manufacturer kind of came out of the woodworks and uh, their, their prices were way, way, way higher than you would expect. Um, but as a result, when, when that manufacturer started actually selling at that price and making it at that price, and it became kind of more and more popular from the top end players, some of the top end players, um, the other manufacturers were like, oh, so we don't have to stick to this baseline because there's this other one over here that's making, you know, like charging mm -hmm. twice as much. We can start raising our rates. Well, what that does to the student instruments is the same sort of thing. But their yeah. quality is not going. There's, I play one brand. I won't say again names. I play one brand, but I do not have my students play the student model of that same brand. I won't let them do it. I'm like, nope, mm -hmm. it's garbage because it comes from not the same factory. Mm hmm buy this cheaper one, it's better quality. <laughs> no. No, no, so no. We, we really need more of that stuff where it's not going to kick out the kids who really want to play, but they've got maybe a parent with a bad attitude or mm -hmm. it's just not available to them with their price point or, 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 you know. And that's why we get yeah. kids with Walmart instruments. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. they're not even instruments. They are molded to look like instruments, but they don't have keys <laughs> to move, right? right? I mean, no. No. Or they bought it because it's a certain color, and but it doesn't actually right. play, you know. Right. Yeah. I had one clarinet yeah. that came across my desk that, or my bench that I literally could take the key and just boop with my hand. Oh. And I'm like, yeah. I can't work on this. It does nothing. It's going to bend the second right. you touch it. <laughs> right. 
and you know that, that that's that all comes down to education because you know like we mentioned and, and i'm glad you didn't mention any names because that's again that's not my mo right i, I don't want right, to right. take away anything from anyone but right. you know when you think about for example china like if you can go on amazon and you can buy a 200 dollars green clarinet guess where that thing has to be made basically somewhere in <laughs> asia right and we begin to get these sort of these these uh images of oh everything that comes up where is it made that's i get that question all the time people ask me right where is it made? And I could tell them it's just China and leave it there. And, but then I know immediately what they're, they're thinking yeah. because two things, one, they, they don't know that other manufacturers, literally all of them make instruments in China. I'm not saying your, you know, $18,000 clarinet came from China. I'm just saying they right. make instruments in China, but the other side is they don't know that what Royal has done actually just to, to overcome that image is we've actually invested in higher quality materials than some of the other manufacturers. We've invested in things, we've gone above and beyond just so that we can even be in the same playing field, even if the right. build quality is better, the warranty is better, the wood aging is better. Uh, you have to do so much more, and I know this from my life a ton, you have to do so much more just to be viewed as even in the same realm. So I wish people would understand that when we talk about like, like countries as if as if just because it's made in one geographical location, it automatically means it's something, right? I, I believe that an American and a Frenchman and somebody from China and somebody from Australia and somebody from Africa, they all can have the same ability if they're trained properly, right? It has nothing to do with with the country that they're in. It has to do with the effort they're putting in, the quality yeah. of, of the work. So I really right. wish we could stop saying those types of things and making general comments because unfortunately yes most of the clarinet you're going to buy on amazon mom or dad uh, mm -hmm. for your kid is made in china and it's low quality and your repair tech won't be able to repair it but it's not a right. fault necessarily of the country at large or the people at large because guess what the imac that i'm uh doing this interview on right now uh -huh. came out of shanghai okay right. my, my phone <laughs> Came, came from came from China. You know what I mean? So um, almost everything you do, you use today in some way for better or worse comes from China. But the difference is Apple has control of their factory, right? The mm -hmm. difference is, you know, this, co this company or that company built their factory. They just happen to be using cheaper labor or maybe they're, they're trying to get some better tax laws or, or trade or, or whatever. So right. uh, it, it's so much more complex than unfortunately what the marketing will, will have us have a show, but we have to educate parents. You have to educate teachers on that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We have to educate parents on that. Yes. Yeah. And that's, um, if you're, if you're dealing with parents on any level, if you're a band director, if you're a <laughs> private teacher, if you're in sales, if you're in repair, that is your job. Like if you haven't figured that out yet, or if you're training to be one of these things, that's your job. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Don't, don't skimp on your knowledge. Cause that, that just leads to problems down the road for everybody. That was a, yeah. that was a tangent. That's okay. Yeah, though. sorry. That's me. Moment. Sorry. <laughs> that's a, no, that's the beauty you, you of this can't podcast. You open-ended questions, right? You can't, you can't do it. No, I, I meant my statement, not yours. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, Brian, I think... I think that's a good place yeah. for us to stop, but I think so. we really appreciate you coming on and, and telling us all these things. I mean, my gosh, you've got quite the story and it's really nice to have a repair person on here and someone who's on that other side of, yeah, I got a music degree, but I'm making my living using that degree as a tool, not the end. 
expectation and showing us like, no, this is fine. We need more examples of that. Right. It's not just fine. It's, it's a happy place. Yeah. And I I, thank you for having me. And, you know, and I'll, I'll just say, look, you know, if I, if I wanted to be rich, I certainly wouldn't have gone into music. Um, But, but I I guarantee you happiness is, is more about, um, you know, your personal life and your personal, you know, circle and your personal climate, you know, we can, we can be very, very happy, um, you know, with, with living with less than we thought we could. And, and don't let me also forget that, you know, part of the story that we didn't, we didn't talk about is my wife having a military job, right. And the kind of security that that provides for me to be able to do what I do. So I don't want to leave you with thinking that this kid just came from nothing and did everything on his own, because that's not true. Uh, I have people along the way and, and certainly my, my wife uh, has sacrificed a lot uh, so that we could both do what we, we love. So Again, thank, thanks for having me. And if there's anything I could I could yeah. say to people, it's that, look, it's more about your happiness and your survival as long as you're not hurting other people. Uh, do what's going to make you happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Brian, if anybody wants to get in touch with you or, or find out more about your company and, and what you do and what are, where, where can people go to find out more about you and what you do and et cetera? Sure. So you can, of course, go to my website at CorbinClarinetProducts.com. Just Google that too. Uh, Of course, I'm on social media. I'll be honest that I'm, I'm, uh, I need to get better at it. But, uh, you know, I have other people I work with. Find me on Instagram, CorbinClarinetProducts. Same on Facebook. Uh, You know, send me an email uh, on any of those, those sites, Brian at CorbinClarinetProducts.com. I do get inundated with emails, but I try to respond as quickly as I can, or just give me a call. I talk with clients, uh, but but usually social media and my website if you want to find any any information. And if you're not a clarinet player and you just have questions about business and things, um, I do get those quite quite a bit. Uh, it takes me a while to respond to all of them, but people do ask me those questions, um, and and I'm happy to respond when I can. Yeah, yeah. And if, if you're listening to uh, when he's saying Corbin, it's C O R B I N as in Nancy. So if you're looking for if you're looking for Brian, that's where he's at. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you again for being with us. Um, And if you're listening and you're interested in clarinet or you play clarinet, um, do check out Brian's products. Um, I play on one of your bass mouthpieces and I know you've done some work for me before and I'm, I'm a picky pants. Just going to put this out there. Um, Oh yeah. Major picky pants. Um, (laughs) Like, like, no, I want it this way. I want it that way. And you've handled every single request I've thrown at you very well. So I, five-star review. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Outstanding. So the guys, thank you all for joining us. And if you don't mind, please go leave us a review, subscribe and share with a friend. And thank you again, Brian, for being with us. Bye. Bye. Bye.